You're listening to the Elephant in the Room property podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking dumbbell of the week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. This is a recording of a conversation that Chris and I had a year ago. Now we kept it on the back burner because we'd had so many great interviews from guests and then we suddenly remembered we hadn't released it. The conversation is all about disruption and the changes technology could bring to the real estate industry. Now a few things have changed since this conversation, but you know what? Most have remained the same. So a year isn't always such a long time after all. Listen on and see if you agree. And uh, if you do, or even if you don't, we'd love it if you could share your thoughts in an iTunes review. In this episode, Chris and I are going to talk about disruption and in particular how disruption is going to affect the real estate industry And today I went to a briefing from the REI New South Wales and it was a hot topic. The fact that the industry itself is ripe for disruption for lots and lots of reasons. And one of the reasons is really revolves around the fact that agents are not the most trusted profession. They used to be pretty trusted. I think, you know, I think probably 30, 40 years ago, real estate agents were actually respected but they certainly haven't been in recent times. And a lot of that's obviously because of their own behaviour. But so the industry at the moment is very concerned about disruption and the threat and taking very seriously or taking a very serious look at what the options are and what they should be doing. I should say we, because I'm a real estate agent, of course, uh, but what we should be doing to make sure that we have a relevance in the future. Mm. So one of the things that was discussed today was that we are at a professionalism crossroad. And so obviously the real estate industry, and we've talked about in a few of the episodes that we've recorded with various um, guests, you know, change is forcing the industry to look at, well, what are our options? They've put up that there's four options. One, you can just go out of business. Not that, mm-hmm. not that appealing. Mm-hmm. Two, that you just stick with the status quo, which ultimately probably means you'll end up going out of business anyway. Same thing, yeah. Three, that you become a discount processor. Yep. Um. You might go out of business doing that too, uh, unless you can keep your costs down. And four, become a professional advisor, which is obviously Mm -hmm. the pathway to professionalism that is uh, very much a focus in real estate circles currently. But in terms of the disruptors, there's a number of them coming onto the market. There's even one coming on this very month, and we're recording this in June. And a lot of these are where technology is going to be introduced to enable vendors to deal directly with buyers. Mm-hmm. And so this episode, what we want to do is talk about, are these a good thing for buyers? Will buyers really benefit from sales agents being cut out of the picture? Well, I mean, it's a huge, huge discussion. I think um, not only in the real estate industry, you know, in what I do in mortgage broking, financial advice, everyone's very fearful of what, you know, you, it's called like a bit of an Uber moment. You know, the 
Uber wasn't here and then there was taxi drivers and then Uber came and then all the taxi drivers lost their jobs and you know, everyone, I guess, in every industry is a bit worried about this Uber moment happening to them. But I guess it's it may not happen, you know, overnight, but I guess it might happen in stages and, you know, over a long period. And I guess it's everyone's just a bit fearful of how long does it take and what who loses their jobs and, you know, so it's a very, you know, worrying thing for a lot of industries, not just real estate. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, we talked a couple of episodes back with Kent Lardner, mm. uh, episode six, and he mentioned that website, Will a Robot Take My Job? And of course, real estate agents is pretty much doomed, I think was the well, word. Well, financial advice <laughs> and mortgage broker, even more so, I think. I mean, a lot of what uh, financial advisors do is, is you know, sell knowledge, I guess. And knowledge is pretty cheap nowadays. You can go online and, you know, search on Google and, and find it. And if you know how to apply that to your situation, do you really need to go see a financial advisor and probably the answer is no. So, you know, mortgage broking, very similar as well. I mean, if, if you, if you're just there to get a mortgage, you know, do you need a mortgage broker for that? Well, no, there's, there's actually cheaper options online now, you know, Ubank, loans.com.au, um, Uno Home Loans, there's all these digital brokers out there. So, you know, we definitely need to talk about these things because they're not going to go away. Now, a big issue is, well, what can machines do or technology do that human beings can't do and vice versa. But I think, you know, rather than, than try to tackle it all in one big chunk, let's, let's sort of break it down a little bit. Mm. I think, um, I sort of was taking some notes when I was at this briefing today and the very first stage that it seems, um, already has been disrupted in many ways is the agent selection tools. So if you think about you're going to, you're planning to sell your property, then you will go out there and try to find an agent to sell your property. Now, yeah. some people will believe that the agent makes a big difference to the outcome mm-hmm. and other people have a belief that it doesn't. Mm-hmm. So they're going to go for the cheapest, mm-hmm. whereas some will go for those with a good track record or whatever yeah. criteria that they're going to look for in terms of choosing an agent. Yeah. And RP Data or CoreLogic actually did a report on this a few years ago and the number one thing that, that vendors look for in agents is trust. Mm-hmm. So how do you establish trust? And obviously vendors want trust, mm-hmm. yet agents are recorded as being one of the least trusted uh, professions. Mm. So there's an immediate mismatch. And so therefore you've had lots of apps come on the market. You've got Open yep. Agent. I think you've got... Oh, well, the names of them. One is Rate My Agent. Yeah, Rate My Agent, Know My Agent, yep. Local Agent or yep. Find a Local Agent, whatever they're called. But there are all these apps out there. Now, you could argue that this makes things easier for a consumer, and it should, except there's a massive bias that comes in with some of these. Well, I mean, I guess the, the app is going to reward people who are selling a lot and, you know, who have got lots of reviews going on the system, and they're going to be considered to be the best in the area. So what these apps are really probably doing is is already 80% of the business is probably going to these agents, mm. but even more of the business is probably still going to these agents because it's probably still, you know, the, the algorithm is probably supporting the people who are paying them um, and the people who are selling. And so, you know, I guess if you're a new agent, you know, how do you become, because if, if you're trying to sell a house in Bellevue Hill and you type the address Bellevue Hill in, it's going to pick the top three agents, recommend you to speak to those three agents and those three agents are going to probably be the best-selling agents. So, you know, it pretty much doesn't, unless there's probably going to be three agents in Bellevue Hill that are going to be successful on that platform, I guess. So that's sort of interesting too because they don't all get payments from agents. Mm. Some of these sites do, and I think that 
that's what the consumer needs to be very aware of. Yeah. Why are these people rated well on the site? Is mm. it because they're paying the fees and therefore they get pushed? Or is it because it's actually a true user um, or the content in their site is actually truly coming from users? Yeah, and I mean, that's the, whenever you're looking at reviews. I mean, you're, you're only going to show good testimonials on your website, aren't you? You're not going to show all the bad testimonials. And it's the same thing with these sites. They're only, you know, however they do their reviews and their systems and their processes, if it's not independent and there's not trust there, then it's kind of worthless, right? You know, everyone can write a good review, mm. but unless it's verified, et cetera, like that. So I think that's a, a big challenge with these platforms is that, you know, that a lot of the reviews behind them may not be verified. They may not be independent enough. There may not be a you know, I guess, uh, transparency there that actually gives it credibility. Which is ironic, isn't it? Yeah. Because they're there because there's a lack of trust for agents. And so then there's, that just breeds a whole plethora of other platforms that actually aren't necessarily trustworthy themselves. Yeah. I think it's, people want to just get a pick an agent very fast. So this allows them to speak to three agents very quickly. And then as long as one of those three agents doesn't come across you know, in a bad light, then they're probably going to go ahead with them. <laughs> so I, I mean, I think that's what you're right though. That's a huge disruption. You know, if you're the fourth or fifth agent or the 20th, how do you actually get in that top three? Um, and I mean, I guess even listing platforms, I mean, real estate, accommodation, domain, you know, they're oh, just you're keep... jumping the gun here because that's the next thing. But once, before we get to that, I think for someone who wants to sell their property, one of my big tips is go to open houses and essentially, you know, you basically doing a secret shopper. Yeah. Yeah. So you're pretending to be a buyer or you're going to become a buyer probably at some point, but go out as if you're a buyer and mm. really assess how those agents deal, how they manage their open houses, how they greet you, how they sell the house while you're there or the apartment while you're there, how they follow you up, how they engage with you. Really judge them on that mm. because that's going to be a true sense or a bit more of an indication of the type of relationship and the type of way they're going to handle you when you list your property with them. So that would be the one thing I would recommend. Yeah, I think that's, that's I mean, that's brilliant if you live in Roselle and you're trying to sell a house in Roselle or the house that you've got or the investment property you've got maybe in Sydney, you could probably do that. But if you're trying, if you've, you've you unfortunately bought an investment property in, you know, Timbuktu and you, you need to sell it and you've got to find an agent there, it's probably a little bit difficult for that. Yeah. I mean, I guess probably a good sign is to see the other agents that are the agent is selling something similar to the price that you want to sell. That's important, actually. Yeah. And in, one of the things that we do when we're doing our portfolio review, we do actually survey agents in, in areas and we look on the portals such as realestate.com.au or domain.com.au and actually look in at their agent profiles and who are the top selling agent in those areas, but also who's selling the most amount of property similar to what we're looking at. Yeah, and I mean, because a lot of the time you would probably, if it's not, if you're selling it, you're selling it for a reason and sometimes you're selling it because it's not a great property, um, which is a reason why you probably should sell it. <laughs> um, and if an agent has sold a similar property recently, you know, a client literally right now, um, you know, it's a unit in Wentworth Park, you know, it's not a great investment um, and, you know, they're trying to sell it. So, you know, they've tried to speak to a few different agents and they've gone for the agent that's pretty confident to sell it off market. Because, you know, by the time it presents itself on Wentworth Park, there's hundreds of other properties on there. They've just tried to find a hungry agent that is willing to sell it, who's got the confidence that they've got the buyers. Who's uh, seriously going to be able to sell something there where there's all these new buildings being, I think the first building has just been completed, right? Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. There's there's hundreds of buildings there's, already. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. But there's a lot more to go, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So why bother with off market? I mean. Just got to get rid of it, you yeah, know. But- <laughs> 
they going to get rid of it off market? What buyer is going to go for that that hasn't gone for something that's not aware of everything else that's on the market? Well, I guess, I mean, that's just the, they're trying to find someone to get rid of it, you know, every, and so <laughs> she's going to, unfortunately, oh. it's a hard asset to sell, right? God, yeah. You know, like if you're a real estate agent, it's the last listing you want. Mm. How do you differentiate a product that is no different? Yep. You can't say that it's nicer the because it's not. It's, it's, it's exactly ex- the same. It's exactly the same as, you know, the other hundred properties for sale. So, you know, and this is when we talk about technology, you know, this is a property that would be probably perfect for a platform that, you know, is just online and, you know, there's someone willing to buy it, you know, because it's very hard for that property to, it's you know, to sell in the market. Itself. Well, this is another thing that they mentioned at, at this briefing today was that um, really the advertising portal, so, you know, your domain and, and real estate are the biggest, um, they're effectively going direct to vendors now and offering vendors a direct listing mm-hmm. um, opportunity as well. So you can see the landscape that if an, an agent themselves isn't adding any value in the transaction and, you know, somebody can easily market their own property, then then you can absolutely see why agents are starting to get worried. And oh, a real estate economy and domain, 100%, they would be thinking about going into selling their own homes. Mm. Um, I mean, they've got everything infrastructure set up online to sell these things. And they do mortgage followers on. Too. Well, no, that's exactly mm. right. So they've already got their home loan teams mm. set up. Um, you know, if they could cut the agent out in the end and sell their homes online, <laughs> um, you know, I guess in – the rooms somewhere they'll be thinking about that. It's yeah, <laughs> there's a bit of an elephant in the room, really, isn't it? <laughs> when you think about it, that's bullshit. I mean, they've they've grown on the back of all that real estate agent advertising, and now mm. they're going to say, "Well, see you guys. We can do it without you." Um, on that too, there's a new app being launched this month, I do believe, um, called Air Listing. .com.au. Now, I found out about this via LinkedIn, actually, and it's sort of its premise, and I may have got it slightly wrong here, but the premise is that uh, you can list your property on there. Uh, you get a registered valuation or a valuation to my registered valuer, and then as long as you commit to selling it within a range of, I don't know what the variance is, maybe it's 5% plus or minus or something like that, as long as you sign and go, right, yes, I am prepared to, yeah. to, to sell within that range, then you can put it on there and basically it's like an on- online bidding mm-hmm. platform. Mm-hmm. Well, that's right. I mean, if you're trying to sell a unit in Wentworth Park, as an example, we're not just going to pick on them. No. It's not just the only area in Sydney I'd be worried about. There's no. plenty of areas like that mm. um, and other cities like Melbourne, you know, and Brisbane. Yep. We could keep going. Like these type of new units, fundamentally, there's a big flaw in them mm. um, and why you have problems with their price prices and, you know, their growth. But if you were trying to sell that from an agent point of view, it's very tough work, right? You've got mm. very few buyers. You've got a product that's hard to sell. You do all this work and you only get paid if it actually sells. Yep. Do you really, is that really profitable? Is it really good business to be running around chasing and trying to get two joins to end, like two ends to meet? Um, <laughs> so, you know, really these are the type of, you know, agents shouldn't really be doing this anyway, you know, because it's it's very hard work trying to sell something that's, you know, that, just so many of them. And you know? so from a buyer's point of view, that should be a warning sign for the buyer. Mm. So you could argue, oh, it's great for buyers because they can get to buy it cheaper, you know, mm. because the person, it's a race to the bottom really, isn't it? The person who's prepared to offload their property at the cheapest price will get the first buyer. Yeah, There might only be one buyer, but mm. 10 properties. But that from a buyer's perspective and what we're trying to do in this podcast is educate buyers mm. 
then from that buyer's perspective, that's a massive warning sign. You know, if, if that is the way that a property has been marketed because it's a commodity, mm. then I would say run. You know, if you've got a good property, you know there's going to be competition. Mm. You know, you've got probably got six agents knocking your door every day trying to sell it. Um, but also, you know, if you list it, you're going to get hit lots of markets. You're going to hit lots of, and these are the properties that won't have any problems or from technology because the whole reason that, you know, pushes the price up, that extra five or extra 10% mm. is that competition you know, over that four weeks where, you know, they, they get all the buyers together and this internal competition starts to push the price up. And a technology, this is where I don't think a lot of technology can, you know, manufacture, I guess. Um, and this is where I think a lot of agents who are working with selling these type of properties, probably not that bothered. They know that they've got good products. They're very competitive. They're in great areas and they're in great suburbs. And these, these type of properties are always going to have competition. If they've always got competition, then emotion's going to come in. And when emotion comes in, you're going to need, you know, human in there to basically try to keep the elephant out of control <laughs> so we get the highest price. Okay. You could think that only having humans involved is, well, you could argue that in an emotive sort of sale scenario such as that, that human involvement is actually going to stimulate the elephant. <laughs> mm. <laughs> this analogy gets a bit messy, doesn't it? However, online auction platforms, and remember we talked to David Scholes, that's yeah. episode eight, um, you know, online platforms equally have, you know, they operate differently. They, they generate the fear of missing out and loss aversion and they kick into a lot of those behavioural biases in a very different way than, say, an in-rooms or an on-site auction with a live auctioneer. But those auction, online auction sites or online bidding sites, I don't necessarily think that they're good for buyers either. No, I do think that it was very interesting, you know, in that conversation around, um, you know, the eBay of property selling, mm. you know, when you've got a time, it's going to finish at Friday at 5 PM. Um, and there's a beautiful platform that says that this place is worth a million dollars and they've got open homes over that month that you can go check it out as an online building and pest report. Um, and you really want this place, you know, I think that's still going to create competition. Um, and you still find that the, they'll People probably pay overpay. the big price. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, so they'll overpay for different reasons or responding to different stimuli perhaps, mm. but they certainly will still overpay. And I think that's going to be harder because personally, I think what, you know, these are pushed forward as saying that they're transparent, right? Mm. There's a new app, there's a new agent, uh, portal called open with two ends negotiation. Now, this has only been recently released and, and this is actually being targeted at agents themselves. So for them to use this technology rather than them getting involved in the negotiation with buyers, mm -hmm. this is this is basically agent lists the property, agent markets a property, agent opens the property, agent probably follows up with buyers, but at the end of the day there's a deadline on it, a timer. The, the buyers themselves register online. They see that there are other people registered. Mm. Um, so there's a danger there from an agent too in, case, in those situations where there might only be one buyer interested. Mm. But there's this, there's this transparency, but it's not really transparent because at an auction you actually physically can see what somebody just bid for mm. or bid to, whereas when you're in your dark room mm. <laughs> looking at your computer screen with your glass of wine and your mind is going crazy thinking I'm going to miss out, I'm going to miss out, I'm, I'm going to have to, mm. I'm going to have to bid an extra hundred thousand dollars. I'm going to have to bid, you know, there's all this sort of stuff goes on that is very different type of 
concern or very different type of pressure? Well, yeah. I mean, eBay had that problem and it probably still does have that problem. I don't know. But where, you know, you, if you had a minimum reserve of a dollar mm. and you list something, then there's nothing stopping you opening up a fake account and actually bidding against your own, uh, you know, things you're selling. You know, there's no oh, yeah. reason why you can't, at $100, you see someone's interested, open up a fake account and then bid 105 and then basically vendor bidding mm. against yourself, um, you know, to push the price up. So, so what did eBay you know, do about that? Uh, I don't actually, that was years ago. I mean, mm. I knew that they, they there's probably tools and ways that them be able to stop this. I'm not a mad eBay buyer, so I, yeah. don't, I don't even think about that. <laughs> but yeah, but it's, it's the, you can game the system, mm, right? Of course, yeah. And there's no reason why, it's, you know, some of these apps is you couldn't start gaming the yeah, system, hadn't you know? Yeah, I thought about that. And so, you know, you, this is where, you know, I'm the sure transparency is. is there, but, you know, you've, it's only how, how much it is there. It's an illusion. Know. Yeah. And I mean, look, obviously we haven't gone into the depths of the mechanisms of these uh, sites, so you know we could easily be um, proven wrong here. Yeah. Maybe they do have great systems in place, and I'm sure that the smart operators and smart developers would have th- thought of all these things. But I think it's really important that consumers and buyers do think and do question whether these are actually better for them or not, because dealing with a human being, one thing that I think Simon Russell said this that a machine doesn't have a conscience. Mm. You know. So at the end of the day, we say we trust the machine, we trust mm-hmm. the app, we trust the valuation model, we trust mm. an AVM, really. I wouldn't, not, mm. not yet. Um, why do we trust that? Mm. You know, I think as buyers we have to be very, very careful, where, you know, how trusting we are of technology. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're talking about there, I mean, Purple Bricks, for as an example, um, you know, it's a lower cost way of selling a property. So it saves you money through selling, but mm. does it cost you on the sale price? Do you get a lower sale price or do you get the perfect sale price? You know, and I guess that's the other thing to this, you know, to think about here is that might be saving you money on one hand, but is it costing you money on the other hand? Um, it's the same as when you choose to use a buyer's agent or not. Yeah. You know, a lot of people go, oh, I don't want to pay the 20 grand or whatever it is for the fee because that means it's coming off my deposit. And you think, well, actually, you know, if you get the right buyer's agent, then the value can either be in terms of buying at a cheaper price because better negotiation skills Mm. or it could be actually buying a better asset that actually appreciates exponentially greater rate than a poorer asset. Mm. So it's it's a sort of flip side of the same argument. It's hard to quantify, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's all about how you – Kind of where you're trying to save money, and I think if you're trying to save money on on selling thing, an extra five or ten thousand dollars to an agent that may get, you know, fifty, hundred thousand dollars more, it's you haven't really saved money, have you? You know, mm. you've actually lost money. But you there's know, no parallel universe, so how would you even know? Mm. And because these are, it taps into another bias. Is it auspices bias, where basically you you'll convince yourself that I hope I've got the right word here for it, but you'll convince yourself that you made the right decision because the conse- well, considering the consequences of having not make a good decision is too painful. So you just, you, mm. you will seek, re- you know, you'll seek to, to reassure yourself that you did make a good call. Yeah. I mean, no one wants to ever look back on hindsight and think they've made a mistake. So, Especially you know, property. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's where you learn, right? That's where you actually mm. really understand um, you know, what's a good decision, what's not a good decision. If you're not reflecting on your own mistakes and things that you've done in the past, you know, how are you ever going to grow? And that, I think that's the, 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 one of the things you should be doing is, is really questioning everything you've done in the past, especially around property. And has that been a good decision? You know, not many people have gone back and looked at the properties they've purchased 
and compared that to the the average. Yeah, well, you know, or compared that to the median, or I would say less than point one percent do that. I really because most people, when I say to them, or they say to me, "Oh, I'm really happy with uh, my property portfolio. I've done really well at a property," and all I say, "Oh, that's fantastic. I'm really happy to hear that." How have you measured that? And it's like crickets because yeah. they haven't. They've just, if they've actually sold it for well, more than they up. paid for it, so that they're happy with that, but there's no measure for how did that compare with what could have could have been. Yeah, and it's pretty easy to do. You know, if you've got a unit in an area, we'll mm. go from if it's, you know, whatever suburb, um, I don't know, Brunswick, for example, in Melbourne, <laughs> um, you know, you compare the units to the houses. Okay, okay, well, that's great. And then maybe if you've got a house on a main road, Maybe try to find a house on a quiet back street, a beautiful tree line street, and compare that and that and to your property. What was that worth? And you know, this it's I, and then I've if you tracked, compare, yeah. I've done a lot of case studies on this. I've actually picked properties that I know uh, have been underperformers, and then I've gone and troweled through the data to find other properties that have sold, bought and sold in similar time. Yep periods in the same suburbs and sometimes in different suburbs as well, particularly if you're looking at investments, it's really important to consider what else could you have spent your money on. And one particular uh, case study I did on a little house in Balmain and over the period of time that it sold a number of times uh, over a 12-year period, so you could track this one against the median, for mm. instance, um, very easily. And so this property had actually lost, it, it had it had fallen away from the rest of the market effectively to the tune of $180,000 over the 12-year period. Mm. So if it attracted the median, it would have yep. been worth $180,000 more 12 years yep. down the track. Let alone outperforming the median, which yeah. some properties do as well. Absolutely. So, you know, it kind of compounds, you know, there. So on the technology side, what are some of these other apps that you've seen out there? Yeah, well, it's not necessarily some of the apps themselves. It's the use of other apps. Like, for instance, um, other advertising, other advertising vehicles such as the use of Facebook, mm. and so vendors can actually put their own property out on Facebook if they wanted to, you know. And there's been some examples of people that have done that. So they may have, you know, they. Uh, you want to have a lot of Facebook friends, wouldn't you? Well, they might boost it. <laughs> I mean, you want to, but if say say you did have a property with some level of uniqueness, a scarcity, a beautiful view, or something mm-hmm. that that made it um, unique and appealing, mm-hmm. and you put out a fabulous image on Facebook and pushed it out that way, and had people feeling like they had this exclusivity before an agent was going to get the listing, for instance, mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. certain market conditions, certain times, that is a perfect vehicle for it. I mean, any big platform with lots of big databases, you know, your Amazons, your Facebooks, Google. Google have tried to go there for home loans. Mm. Um, they do it for flights. And, you know, there's definitely these platforms will be thinking, well, after we've exhausted the growth in this area, what are the other areas? And selling things making and transactions are always going to be where they're going to think about doing. And the bigger the transaction, the more money there is to be made. And so real estate's probably high up on the list of these platforms to think about if we were going to go into other areas, what mm. products could we sell that would that are big transactions? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you have to think about these things, but why wouldn't Amazon, as an example, move into selling homes at some point when, you know, they've got all the technology, they've got all the AI, they've got the machine learning, they've got all the brand trust well, and the awareness. Those- devices in everybody's houses so they can hear what they're talking about. Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> I just don't get how smart people, it's bad enough with Siri and I know Siri listens. Yeah. I know because I've talked about random stuff and then I've turned on my computer and the next thing there's ads being 
yeah, shown to me. So I know Siri listens. I'll, I'll attach a very interesting YouTube clip for that actually in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm mortified. And so, you know, you bring in Google Home or you bring in uh, Amazon, uh, was it Alexa? What are we doing letting this into our homes? Mm, you At the moment we don't like them. Do you have one? No, I haven't got one. I'm not I have played one. with them though, but um, <laughs> yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean, people love them. In the US, they're huge. Um, you know, it's pretty scary how many members Amazon have got. And if the future of our search is voice, which, mm. you know, a lot of good research is saying that, how do you become number one in SEO on voice? Mm. So take me to the barber and that will take you to the number one barber, let's say, in the area. Yeah. There's no choice. It doesn't say here's the top five barbers. It says, well, this is the one. He's Well, but then does it even take you to the number one SEO one or does it take you the number one advertised one, advertising. the one that, that's paid the most in advertising? And yeah. then we get back to that, um, you know, the the rate my agents, although I, I think you and Morton, we interviewed him and he corrected me when I said that rate my agent, they had to pay or the agents have to pay to be on. Uh, from what I understand, that is one portal where they don't pay. I don't know what they're I wouldn't. I haven't. I haven't looked at them in in detail. No, but I, I mean, either. I think it's a very important point mm. for any consumer, though, to know who pays who. Yeah. You know, like so. You know, if they're seeing a financial advisor, how are you getting paid? You know, who, yes. who's actually, who's where are you making your money? Right. You know, and if you're seeing a mortgage broker, who pays you? Do the banks pay you the same amount? Ask. You know, you need to figure out who pays who. Yep. You know, and if you see a buyer's agent, for example, you know, especially if they're offering anything new. You know, and it's not something that's sold and there's any chance of someone getting paid a commission. Mm. Um, you know, you need to ask these questions. Who's paying who? Actually, this is a massive elephant in the room topic because who pays who is absolutely critical to the quality of advice, right? So if you're not paying for advice, then you're being sold to because someone's paying that person. Mm. So, and this is one of my, I guess, my issues with property anyway. Fundamentally, the market or the industry has got one big flaw, and that is that people don't pay agents unless they sell. Yeah. Which means that that agent, and 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 I'm not bagging agents here at all. This is just systemic. It's the structure of the industry that until homeowners are willing to pay for advice throughout the whole sales campaign and have that payment not contingent on a sale. Until they're prepared to do that, then there's always going to be this issue of trust. I agree. You know, and these and these things don't have to always be this way. You know, the, the way that the agents have been paid doesn't have to, the way mortgage brokers have been paid doesn't always have to stay that way. Financial mm. advisors already changed. You know, I think it's a good thing that, you know, the, the way that commission and, you know, way that people are paid evolves with the times. But you're right. If an agent got paid, you know, an initial engagement fee, you know, $3,000, let's say, and then... They were paid, say, 50% at the end of the campaign, whether you sell or not. Um, you they know, could and, still have a success component. Correct, and, yeah, and, and it was an uplift. And if you, I mean, they've been trying to bring this into uh, funds management for years um, and, you know, the funds management industry is very powerful mm. um, and the way that they get paid is a percentage of assets. Now, it doesn't matter if they're making money or they're losing money, they still get paid a percentage of the assets. So if I'm managing a billion dollars, I get 1%. If I'm managing $900 million because the fund's gone down, I still get 1% on $900 million. I still make a lot of money. Mm. So to me, it doesn't really matter if we're performing or not. I still get paid. 
yeah. you know, as the fund goes up mm. and down. Now, very few fund managers will step away from that model because the alternative model is performance-based. Right. And it's to say, well, I'll make money when we make money and you make money. And that's just something that never they don't want to change. But if you were <laughs> saying what's the best option for consumers and what's right and what's fair. You'd be a bit of both. You'd be a bit of both, mm. yeah. You know? I have to say that um, one of the reasons, and I probably didn't even realise this until I reflected on it, but one of the reasons I jumped ship from selling, so I sold for six years into buying. Now I've been doing that for, well, 12 nearly. Um, one of the reasons that I did that is because I like being paid for my advice. And it used to really frustrate me. I used to give very good advice to people and often to my own detriment because I'd often suggest people didn't sell mm. <laughs> or waited. Mm. Um, you know, but I had a very big, very much a big picture view of the world and also my role within that industry. And so as a consequence, I have a lot of my clients now that I had back then when I was a selling agent. But that certainly isn't widespread, that mm-hmm. type of attitude. I'm seeing that it's becoming more, there's certainly a movement more in that direction, which is great, but I still don't think that fundamentally the structure of how they're remunerated supports that. Yeah, and I think that's a, it's, it's definitely probably a watch this space in lots of industries, mm. you know. Um, you know, there's a pressure on transparency and the Royal Commission's doing that. I mean, it hasn't gone there for property. Mm. If it did, you know, we would see lots of things come out and lots of change. Um, maybe it will one day, but, um, you know, End of the day, if, if an agent is adding a lot of value and they've added a lot of value and they've got a great sale price and they've managed their campaign brilliantly and they've done a really good job, I don't think there's many vendors out there that would say, I'm not happy with paying that agent that fee because they've done an amazing job. I yep. guess it's when they may not have done an amazing job and they've, they've given $10,000, $15,000, $30,000 to an agent and they feel a little bit like, well, what I didn't really know what happened mm-hmm. and I didn't really get anything for it. And I think that's in every industry you know, it's not just agents that we're picking on here. It's, you know, the transparency around who pays who and how do I get paid and is it value for money? It's getting questioned everywhere in life. Well, I'm not necessarily picking on agents either. I actually think that that our consumers and consumers and and homeowners and vendors and buyers, everyone plays a part in this because mm. uh, if you're not paying for advice, you're sort of happy not to pay for advice. You know, you don't want to change that either. Just before we get back to technology, one of the things that I think, consumers need to be really aware of, and this is both buyers and vendors, is are there kickbacks, right? Now, in the Property Stock and Station Agents Act in New South Wales, uh, there is a requirement to get people that you've got signed an agency agreement with, so a vendor, for instance, if you're a selling agent or a buyer, if you're a buyer's agent, they have to sign what's called a Section 47 disclosure. And so that clearly states the organisations or people that you may recommend in the course of doing business and what kickback you get for that recommendation, if any. Mm-hmm. But what actually happens quite often is that, and I see this a lot with sales agents, they will might recommend a buyer's agent because a buyer's agent has gone in there and offered them a 20% referral fee. Mm-hmm. But because they're recommending it to a buyer who actually they don't have an agreement with, they're not disclosing that they get a fee. Mm. And the buyer's agent may not disclose it either. And I've heard of this and I've seen it happen. Likewise, on the flip side of that, you get buyer's agents that put – sales agents over a barrel and say, right, well, I'm not going to refer you to my client unless you give me a 20% referral fee. Mm. And they won't refer you if you don't. And I have a policy in my business. I never pay nor receive uh, referral fees. I, from day one, I've said that. I'm yep. absolutely transparent. So I have had agents ring me and say, look, I've got a, 
uh, buyer that uh, I want to recommend a buyer's agent to, uh, will you pay me a, f- a kickback? And no, I'm like, no, way. I won't. No way. So every now and then, I've had an agent who's more interested in actually a, a good referral and getting good service for their client. And every now and then, I'll get that person still refer their client to me. But more often than not, they're like, oh, well, I'll go to someone else who'll pay me the 20%. Oh, you're happy to lose them, though, to be honest. Like, I think the. You know, good professionals out there have what I call an abundance mentality. Yes. They see the big picture. They understand if they go out there and help people and they do the right thing by people, the word will spread. Yep. And then they'll have more clients than they can ever handle. Yep. And, you know, they believe in that. And um, I'm, I'm and, totally on board with that. But what yeah. I'm saying is the buyer or the seller in these, in these instances, they, they need to ask, are you getting anything for referring me? Yeah. And I think even if they say yes... You need to start say, well, this is a great chance to leave and run away, yes. you know, <laughs> fundamentally. Unfortunately, though, yeah. a lot of buyers, a lot of uh, investors still stay. Yeah. They know that the person's getting a kickback by recommending this property on this development. Oh, well, this yeah, suburb. I haven't even got to that. I was just talking about recommending professionals. But now there's the next thing is uh, there are buyers agents and I will put my rabbit ears, you know, the inverted commas around that term because unfortunately it's not a regulated term and it should be, but it isn't. That are, that are actually property spruikers and they're getting paid by the developer. Uh, and, that, I mean, that happens everywhere and, unfortunately, you know, I sometimes pick up the pieces from this and, mm. you know, I get phone calls. Um, you know, people will see that I'm on LinkedIn and I've posted a few comments around property and then all of a sudden it happened this morning. You know, I get a BDM for a developer, call me up and, you know, think mm. that we have a synergy and that we should work together and that, you know, so when you can recommend properties to your clients. Um you know, it's a big, big, big concern. Um, you know, the real estate industry, um, you know, and the rules around regulation, around disclosure and and um, the financial advice industry has got, a, you know, a few worries around that because unfortunately a lot of financial advisors have actually gone on and got real estate license, you know, so they could actually go recommend their own property. Um, <laughs> so, you oh, know, yeah. it's uh, it's definitely who pays who is a, is a big, big elephant. Yeah, and absolutely. So I think what's missing though from these apps and technology and where mm. technology replaces, uh, you know, professionals is, I think, advice, mm. you know, and nuance and also negotiation capability. And one of the things I've really realised in all the people that we've been interviewing for this podcast is that the value that a really good agent adds to the transaction is massive, yeah, absolutely massive. And so the unwitting buyer out there you know, you need to be very aware of how unequally matched you are when you're up against a really good agent. And a vendor needs to understand what they're paying for. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't help but think just recently, I'm, you know, looking out and about at some properties on a Saturday. Uh, you know, I've gone to some very good agents in, in the in the east, of, or in the west, sorry, of Sydney. And then I, um, the next one on the list was another property and I looked at their, their listing on realestate.com.au and I was like, Oh, this isn't very good. Great, not great photos, and the floor plan looked a very, you know, nineteen eighties. Anyway, so I rock up at this house, and um, you know, park the car. There's no one there. There's no flag. There's nothing. Um, and then a lady, you know, walks out with a little board, and um, I walk up. I'm the only one at this viewing, and um, she's like, "Oh, hello," <laughs> and I'm like, "Hi," and she's like, "Oh, well, you know, can I have your details? Are you looking to buy?" And I'm like. Uh, yes, and she's uh, got her pen and paper out, fumbling away, and um, you know, very carefully writing my name and number down on the board. And you know, next <laughs> thing you know, um, Dad pops out, and Dad's 
you know, here to sell sell the property as well. So um, they're selling their own home. Selling their own home. <laughs> God love them. And um, you know, he's wearing his best jumper as well. And uh, <laughs> so you know, and um, I couldn't believe it. I was like, these guys are should not be selling this property. It's it's actually a oh, very good property. Right. It's, it's actually you know, it's in a great area. It's on a good street. It's a nice frontage. Mm. It's very poorly presented, but you know these. You know, they, they have no idea on how to sell a property mm. and they've actually trying to sell a $1.8 million terrace, um, you know, on off market by themselves. Um, and so, So are you, you going to try and take advantage of them and, and snaffle it for a deal? <laughs> well, it wasn't that good of a property, but, you know, it's as an example though, like yeah. it's, it should sell. It should sell for mm. a good price. The, a developer or someone willing to do a good reno job mm. would, would love it. And, um, you know, it, they're never going to get their best result. And that's why I look at the technology as well. Like, if you've got someone with local knowledge, local experience, lots of relationships, can yeah. actually sell the dream. Um, and, you know, th- they're always going to have a value, I think, personally, you know, compared to that. And that's where I think, you, you know, technology, while it might do a lot of the things, it's not going to do that, you know, that real personalized service. I think um, one of the things that, that we do, for instance, in our business, we often call it property therapy. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just acknowledging that buying property is extraordinarily emotional process and selling is also an extraordinarily, extraordinarily emotional pro- process. And so a lot of what agents do is, a good agent that is, will actually counsel their clients through those emotional highs and lows. Mm-hmm. And that is something an app can't do. Oh, and I think now when I say I'd, I'm a mortgage broker, it's not the mortgage that really matters, like who the bank will use or the rates or, you know, once we're even structuring, you know, good, most mortgage brokers can do that. Where I personally know that I add value that I can't, a a technology can't do is all those conversations, Mm. uh, you know, I was having one on the way here, you know, all the conversations through that journey when they're thinking about doing it, when they're looking at properties, you know, even thinking if it's the right thing, when they get element of, um, when they miss out, you know, a, a client recently last week missed out at an auction. They were devastated, you know, on the Monday morning, we had a really good chat around it, what happened. And, you know, technology doesn't give them that, that value, you know, it doesn't help them think through, should they go back to the market? They, you know, they were willing to stop buying altogether. And mm. that wasn't the right option, you know, cause they were very, you know, and so I think a lot of agents, hundred percent will manage them through that roller coaster and, you know, and then give them really good advice. If they don't get the right amount and the right offers, you know, a good agent will say, well, let's be patient. Let's put it on the market for a year and rent it for a year, you know, and we'll come back next year and try to sell it if, if it's, you know, if that's the right thing to do or, yeah. you know. Um, Look, I mean, I was actually talking to a client of mine the other day and this client is, they're selling their property and they don't want to buy without having sold. So I've sort of given them some advice, obviously, in the lead up to choosing their agent and that, and that sort of thing. In the back, in the back wings, I've been, you know, giving them a bit of, guidance through that process as well. And she's very emotional about her home, you know, and, and it's, that's really common. And she also renovated this property. So therefore there's a heightened sense of yeah. ownership and, and yeah. you know, there's, there's so much investing in it when you've actually gone and done that yourself. Yeah. And there's lots and lots of reasons why she's particularly emotional about this property. And so in her mind, I think to sell it less than a certain figure she feels like she's not doing the property justice. Mm. You know what I mean? So there's there's so much tied in with this. But the simple fact is the market's slow. She's upgrading. These are ideal conditions to upgrade. Mm. 
she often says to me, I think I'm just going to take it off the market because I'm not going to get the price. And I have mm. to keep saying to her, I absolutely know and understand why you are thinking that way because you feel like you've put your heart and soul into this property and if it's not going to get that sort of price, you feel like you, for whatever reason you're selling yourself short. But the thing is that you're upgrading, the gap between what you're selling and what you're buying is smaller now yeah, than it has been at point. any point over the last five years, six yep. years. And what are you going to do? You're going to wait for the market to take off again, which means that then your property will get you the price that will make you feel good. Mm. But when you go to buy, you're going to struggle mm. to do, to bridge that gap. Yeah. Because, and that's what a lot of people don't realize as well, is that the timing, the market, there's certain market conditions that favor different types of buyers. Yeah. You know, downsizes at the current, currently are being, well, actually that's not necessarily true because <laughs> I was about to say, it's not ideal to downsize at the current market, you know, because when you are selling uh, an expensive property, I mean, the, the, the theory goes, right? So the theory goes, as the market rises, the more expensive property, the gap between the more expensive property and the, and the less expensive property is bigger, mm-hmm. right? So obviously there goes, smarter to downsize, sell your expensive property then, as opposed to a falling market. However, um, if we go back to episode seven, Marianne Cronin mentioned that like in the eastern suburbs, the 10, $12 million bracket is one of the hottest segments of the market. Yeah. I think it's, it's, I think it's probably a case by case basis, but as a generalization, I, I, you know, you would see mm. the, the higher price property is probably fallen 10% on 2.5 million. Yeah. So you've dropped and then you're probably buying something at, you know, 1.5 million. That's probably only down 8%. Um, or even you if know, it's 10 across the board. Or even if so it is 10 and 10, you still be better off, you know, probably well, downsizing. better off. But I mean, I think if you're, <laughs> And, I, and uh, you know, it's hard always timing the market, right? So, you know, if you wanted to mm. downsize last year or downsize this year, the reality is you want to downsize and you really want to do it, then, you know, you're kind you kind of just, just got to do, do it, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's the, that's the hard thing with, with real estate. I think trust is a really essential part of the whole real estate transaction. And that CoreLogic report, which was the agent's view on, we'll actually put the link to the report in the show notes, uh, was agent's sorry, vendor view on real estate agents. I think it was done back in 2015 and, mm. and it really highlighted the things that vendors want and expect from their agents, what they value and trust was obviously number one. And I think that's a bit of a no-brainer. So you can see that the, the industry is moving towards that trusted advisor type idea. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's a work in progress, obviously. But I think that a lot of people who are jaded and don't like agents, I think you have to really really question whether the alternative is better for Mm -hmm. a buyer. And I think that people need to realise they can still overpay at online auctions. Mm -hmm. They can actually be just as emotional, maybe even more emotional, um, and bid accordingly when bidding online. Um, The automated valuation models, you know, we talked with Kent Lardner back in episode six about those and still the quality of data is not yet there to make them robust enough to be that reliable in, in Australia. Uh, the US, he was saying that the data is so much better that one site's even got down to a variance of 6%. So that's mm-hmm. not bad. Mm-hmm. But our variance is way, way beyond mm-hmm. that. So we have to be careful relying on on valuations that are being created automatically. Mm-hmm. Um, I think personally user pays gets better outcomes. Mm-hmm. So I think we've got to be aware of who's who's paying for the advice. And I think too the other thing with the online bidding platforms you know, there's still an opportunity that comes through um, properties that have been accidentally overpriced. When I say yeah. accidentally overpriced, 
agents like to underquote so that they mm. get lots of competition at auction. But sometimes they actually overquote a little mm. bit accidentally. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah definitely. They, they, yep. You know, they're human beings, and yep. that can happen when they're using registered valuations as well. If they get it a bit wrong, and there's only one buyer bidding, mm-hmm. then the lack of social proof can often mean that that buyer is not going to bid online as yeah. well. So if the transparency allows them to actually see, and they won't, and then maybe there's a great opportunity there. So who on earth is going to step in and bridge the gap if mm. it's just on on an app? Yeah, I can't see that everything going 100%, you know, down this route. You know, the good properties and the good suburbs on the good street are always going to have competition, people willing to upgrade, new migration, you know, et cetera. So, you know, you're always going to have this two-sided market where there's not enough good property and there's too many people wanting them. Yeah. And then there's going to be this, whoever wants to pay the most, how they figure out who that is, maybe technology can do it. But then people are going to want to be in there. They're going to want someone to have those conversations mm. with. And, you know, I can't see 100% of the market going. You know, will there be job losses? You know, I personally think that, you know, there's already reports out there that, you know, maybe 50% of the financial advisors are going to lose their jobs. Mm. You know, and I think that's pretty founded. I think, you know, not everyone needs a financial advisor. And, you know, we could see huge job losses in financial advice. Same in mortgage broking. You know, if there's, if you're not adding a lot of value besides just setting up a mortgage from someone, then it's pretty likely that someone's going to get a better experience going online and, you know, through your experience that hasn't been great, they go, well, I can get a cheaper rate online. I might yep. as well refinance. And, you know, those businesses aren't really going to survive. And so, you know, I guess it's important for agents to be realistic on this, but I don't think it's doomsday for the good agents, you know, in working in good areas trying to sell good property. If you are trying to sell property in areas though, and you're an agent in where there's not many property, there's not many buyers, you know, I think you're having a tough job anyway, um, you know, let alone, uh, you know, uh, with technology coming. Yep. So I think the big takeaway here for our listeners is to be critical in your thinking and don't just assume that technology or disruption is going to bring a better solution, mm-hmm. that some some of it will be good, some of it will be very useful and some of it will increase your uh, amount of information that you have at your fingertips. But it isn't nece- just because it replaces agents or has a capacity to replace agents doesn't necessarily mean that's a good thing. Yeah, and I think I look at that as the fixed fee kind of agent model. You know, if if a, if an agent's getting paid a commission, let's say, the more money they sell the property for, then the more money they get paid. So there's an internal kind of connection there. For example, so just assuming that agents get commissions a bad thing, and going for the agent that charges a flat mm-hmm. fee, well, you're not really incentivizing them to to go out and work hard. So you know, there's all these sort of you know things that we sometimes we think something's bad and so we naturally blanket it. Mm. Um, but sometimes there's a, there's an, there's an other side to the coin. I think with this, with this technology, getting rid of agents might not just be the best thing for anyone. I actually just thought of something too. A good agent, and we've had a lot in here talk to us about this, they will actually advise a vendor on how best to prepare that property for sale, how best to present it, what sort of improvements or maintenance or small renovations need to be done in order to maximise their result. So it's that conduit to explain to them the context of their market, what buyers are looking for, you know, what buyers will pay for, those that sort of guidance. Um, what- and I mean, that guidance would have been maybe a year or two before selling. Mm. You know, yes, I've gone yes. into the agent and said, I'm thinking about selling in a few years' time. Well, maybe mm. you should do that 50 grand reno, yeah. add that bathroom, 
and, you know, pretend there's a bedroom in the garage. Yeah. <laughs> and on the flip side, the people that overcapitalise by doing all those things, thinking that buyers will reward that, and buyers couldn't give a rat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, we all don't need three baths, but anyway. <laughs> no, and also just making more bedrooms doesn't necessarily add more no. value. <laughs>
in the market, in the current market conditions. Now, I do have a free mini course uh, on the homebuyeracademy.com.au and I'll put the link in the show notes for this. And there's a free mini course there, three short videos that will actually outline for you how to work out the right price to pay on a property based on recent sales. So that's how you can structure that research. There's also a spreadsheet in there to sort of help you um, plan that out. So if you'd like that, that's great. But that's really essential research and, and certainly we never advise any of our clients on setting their limit on a property that they want to buy until we've actually done that foundational research. So very, very, very important. So they're the two objective measures. The two subjective measures are, firstly, how uniquely does this property suit your needs? And when you do that price research and you actually look at what has sold in the last, say, six or 12 months, you'll have a really good idea as to how often a similar property will come up. If they come up a lot, then you're not going to push yourself as hard for this property because you know that if this one goes, that's okay. It won't be too long before another one that's suitable will come up. But if it's really unique, really unique in terms of its style and the top property is, but also in terms of how it suits your needs and the location that it's in, then you might be inclined to push yourself harder. And the last uh, factor that we have to take into account, the sub, the second subjective factor is your limit. Now that is completely and utterly unique to you. What your borrowing capacity is, what you can afford to repay is your limit. Okay. So those four elements are absolutely essential that you consider all four aspects of those before you set your limit. And I encourage you to set that walkaway price before you start negotiating and certainly before you go to auction. If you are in the middle of an auction trying to work out whether you should pay more or not, you are absolutely going to do one of two things. You're going to pay too much or you're going to actually stop bidding when you should continue bidding. You're not going to know with confidence at exactly what point that property represents optimum value for you and when it's too much. Join us for our next episode when we talk to economist Warren Hogan all about whether or not we're going to enter a recession. We also talk a lot about interest rates, where they're going, why they're going there, etc, etc. We do talk about some of the bigger levers that impact us here in Australia and our property market, and that includes some global things, but also a lot of behavioural responses to these economic changes and how this all plays out in the property market. So it's a really wide-ranging conversation. And if you are starting to worry that Australia is about to head into a recession, then you definitely don't want to miss this episode. And you can find out really from one of the experts whether we are or whether we're not. As you know, we love to read your reviews on iTunes and they also go very much towards helping us spread the word and help other people learn the things that you've been learning when you've been listening to this podcast. And can I say, for Chris and I, we've been learning too. This has been so amazing for us also and we're just really thrilled to share it with you. So if you have found something of particular value, please share it in a review. I just want to say um, what actually happens when we get a review is I or Veronica will screenshot it and send it to each other. And, you know, to be honest, it does make our day. Um, We actually got two in the last week. Um, I mean, the most recent one, thank you for this fantastic podcast. I love the intelligent discussion that really delves into the topics in a way that no other podcast does. I won't go through the rest of it, but, you know, it really makes us very excited when we get reviews. So if you do have two minutes, we'd love to hear from you. I love the one where they say that they can't wait for every Monday. On the long commute home with their partner. I mean, that's, that's, (laughs) that's, that's, that's gold to us. I mean... 
You know, we've been doing this for over 12 months and every review means a lot to us. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Elephant in the Room Property Podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk and edited by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.